You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. This morning we're jumping back into our study in this awesome Gospel. and We've made it through the first four chapters, and now we get to a bit of a turning point. We'll find that there's actually several major turning points in this gospel. Um, many times where, where once something happens, there's no going back. And this is one of those that begins in chapter 5. And we'll also see that from chapters 5 through 10, things begin to simmer and then boil. The tension between Jesus and the Jews will gradually increase until there's really no turning back. This is due mainly to their wickedness, but it's also due to the fact that Jesus will begin making much bolder claims. In the first four chapters, he was somewhat vague in his statement, so it caused more confusion than anger. But now, he'll be making much clearer and bolder claims about his identity and his relationship to God the Father. And most people don't respond well to it. And it's not only the Jewish leaders who don't understand. Even if his followers in the smaller group of his disciples, they don't always understand. But what he's doing is challenging them to step into greater belief. He didn't expect them to understand it all at once. It's not until the Holy Spirit's poured out on them that they finally understand everything, but he's calling them into a deeper belief. And I want to remind us this morning that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel isn't just a tool for saving people. Even if you've been saved for 50 years, the gospel is just as relevant today as it was for the day you first believed, because it's not only the power of God for salvation, but also the power for our daily living and walk with God. In 1 Corinthians 15:1, Paul tells the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. And so my prayer throughout this study in John has been that all of us would step into a greater belief and a, a deeper faith in Jesus. Our God is so great and His love so infinite and His work on the cross so magnificent that we'll never run out of new things to discover and appreciate about Him. Knowing God is a pursuit worthy of a lifetime. And in today's passage, we'll find several major themes running together. The setting is Jerusalem. We have three main characters, Jesus, the Jews, and an invalid. And the main question that's raised is, who has the authority to heal on the Sabbath? Who has the authority to heal on the Sabbath? So begin reading with me in John 5, verse 1. John 5, 1 says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So Jesus had been in Galilee in chapter 4, but now he's traveled back down to Jerusalem to observe a feast of the Jews. It doesn't tell us which one, but it helps explain why he's now appearing in Jerusalem again. And remember, Jerusalem has already become an epicenter of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. 
and especially after he cleansed the temple. So anytime Jesus shows up in Jerusalem from now on, you know that conflict is soon to follow. In this particular account, we have a very detailed description of the setting. There's a pool called Bethesda that's near a gate in Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. And this pool area has these uh, roof colonnades or porticos. And when we see detailed descriptions like that, it should remind us that this is history. This isn't a fairy tale or a myth. The Gospels aren't one giant parable to teach us moral lessons. No, this is actual history, an actual eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. John is recording to us what he saw and experienced as a disciple of Jesus, so be encouraged by that. John also tells us that in this particular place, there was a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. It's always been difficult to have any of those medical issues, even today, but in invalid, being an invalid made life extremely difficult in ancient times. You're completely at the mercy of everyone else with practically no way to make a living for yourself. They're usually left to beg on the streets. There are often social stigmas attached to them as well. We know from the other gospel accounts that some people assume that these infirmities were a result of that person's sin or the sin of one of their relatives. It was a difficult life. And this place was apparently full of these people, so it's interesting that Jesus goes there. This was likely an area that most respected and well-off people would have avoided passing through just because there was this stigma of disgrace. But we see that Jesus doesn't shirk from even the lowest in society. And now we have to pause for a moment and address an issue you may or may not have noticed in your Bibles. Unless you're reading from the King James Version, your Bible probably does not include verse 4, or if it does, it's down in the footnote. It just goes from verse 3 to 5. That omitted verse says this, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So if you're reading from the ESV or the NASB or the NIV, why isn't that verse there? What's up with that? Most modern translations omit verse 4 because it's not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. So, Our modern Bible is validated and based off of ancient copies of the scriptures. And in the oldest and most reliable copies of John's gospel, verse 4 isn't there. But it does show up in later manuscripts. And that leaves scholars to conclude that it was almost certainly a scribal addition later on to help explain this pool and what is meant by the stirring of the waters. So, That's why it's not there, because it's likely not a part of the original text. And that's the simplest explanation. I won't belabor it right now. But if you have more questions or are interested in in that, feel free to reach out to me. and We can talk more about textual criticism and fun stuff like that at another time. But back to the story. There's a man who's been an invalid, apparently unable to walk or move on his own for 38 years. I don't think it's an accident that John tells us exactly how long the man had been in that state. Jesus looks at him and says to him, do you want to be healed? And look at the man's response. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So that omitted verse helps us understand this. Apparently, due to some natural phenomenon, there were times when these waters, which would have been fed by underground springs, were disturbed and the water would move. And that led to the false belief or myth that this was something supernatural occurring, that an angel or a spirit was stirring up the waters, and that whoever got into the water first when it was stirred would be instantly healed of whatever disease they had. 
And so we find in this man's response that he's both helpless and hopeless. Jesus asked him, asked him if he wanted to be healed, and he didn't even say yes. He just said, I have no one to help me into the water. He was helpless because he didn't have a friend or anyone else to help him get to the water first. And the truth was, he was also hopeless because he was never going to find healing in that water anyway. And that shows us the wickedness of false religion and false belief. This man's only hope was in something, some supposedly magic water, but he didn't realize he was talking to the man who could give him living water. But in contrast to this man's hopeless and helpless response, Jesus says this, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. This is unexpected. Now, not what you imagine Jesus would say next. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Right here we have on display the powerful, authoritative, life-giving voice of God. In the beginning, how did God create the universe? With His Word. He spoke, and it was. And from John 1, 1, we know that Jesus is the very Word incarnate. He is the perfect embodiment of the Word of God. And here He tells this man to get up, and He gets up perfectly healthy. And notice what Jesus wasn't hindered by. He wasn't hindered by this, the, man, the length of this man's infirmity. John told us that he had been like this for 38 years. That's a long time. This isn't just healing of a sudden sickness like he did for the official son in chapter 4. But that same infirmity that had plagued this man for 38 years is gone the instant Jesus tells him to get up. And he also isn't hindered by the man's belief or lack of belief. This invalid is still focused on the slight chance one day he'll be the first to get into the waters and be healed. He's believing a devilish lie, and he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Yet, Jesus heals him instantly. That's because the miracles of Jesus were not favors to be earned or tokens handed out for a good answer. Jesus healed him because he chose to heal him. And we'll find later he also did this to teach this man a deeper lesson. So we begin to see again that Jesus is the Lord of sickness and healing because he is the Son of God. But the end of verse 9 is where things get interesting. There it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So it seems like just a, a small insert right there, but if this were a movie, this would be the point where the music all of a sudden gets sinister or intense all of a sudden, because this is a big deal. This is a huge detail to the story. And to understand what's about to happen next, we first have to understand a little bit about the Sabbath. We don't use the word Sabbath so much anymore, but there's quite a history behind it. In fact, the history of the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation itself. In Genesis 1, God creates everything in the universe in six days, culminating with the forming of man. Then in Genesis 2-3, it tells us, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that He had done in creation. So God ceased from His creative work on the seventh day. Not necessarily because He was tired, that wouldn't be very godlike, but really to establish a pattern for His people later on. And so from there, you fast forward from Genesis 2 to Exodus 31, where God commands Moses and the Israelites to begin recognizing the seventh day as a Sabbath day. That meant that day was set apart as holy to God, and just like God ceased from work on the seventh day in creation, so the people of God were commanded to cease from all their work on the seventh day. It was to be a refreshing yet solemn holy day to God. It was really a gift of God to His people for their good. 
And now fast forward from Exodus to the time of Jesus. And like much of the law of Moses, the religious leaders over the centuries had added on mounds of extra rules and traditions on top of the law. Rabbis and priests spent years determining the exact circumstances that could be considered work or not work, to the point where it became a little ridiculous. They wanted to follow the rules because they are champion rule followers, but at the same time, they wanted to find exactly where that line was that they couldn't cross. And breaking the Sabbath was a very serious offense that could get someone cast out of the temple or worse. So with that in mind, let's pick back up in verse 10. It says this, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Remember, when John says the Jews, he's almost always referring to the religious leaders. So these Jews see this man, and they call him out for carrying his bed or mat on the Sabbath. Now, a bed for an invalid would have been nothing more than a thin mat made out of straw that could easily be rolled up and moved, but apparently that was considered work, so this guy's in trouble. And he defends himself saying that some guy just healed him, and that guy's the one who told him to carry his bed and walk. Now notice their follow-up response. They ask, who was the man who told you to do this? They make no mention of the fact that this man has been healed. No mention of the miracle that has occurred. All they want to know is who told you to break the Sabbath. Because someone who encourages others to break the Sabbath is even worse than someone who actually does it. This guy's a threat. Isn't that incredible? They aren't even interested in the awesome way this man's life is radically changed after being an invalid For 38 years. This is the epitome of legalism. All they cared about was the fact that a rule was broken. Because legalistic thought is all based on doing a certain list of things and not doing a certain list of other things in order to be accepted by God. And the saddest part of it is that these Jews who knew the law better than anyone were missing the point of it all. Their focus on following the rules wasn't bringing freedom to people. Instead, it was heaping burdens on them. So know that the Christian life shouldn't feel like a burden. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be easy. Jesus warned his disciples that following him would likely um, make life difficult in a world that's opposed to God. But he offers freedom from guilt and shame and freedom from the condemnation of the law and the weight of always striving to hope you're doing enough to be accepted by God. The Pharisees were like watchdogs just waiting for someone to slip up so they could pounce on them. But Jesus, on the other hand, extends a completely different invitation. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, his invitation is this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will find, and I will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that's an offer that sounds freeing rather than restricting, and life-giving rather than life-sucking. But these Jews only want to know, who is it that told you to break the Sabbath? What person thinks he has the authority to do that? But the funny thing is, this man doesn't even know who it was, because Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. 
But verse 14 says that at some point later, Jesus finds this man in the temple and tells him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Seems like a strange thing for Jesus to say to him, hey, you're doing doing good, walking and everything, now stop sinning. But I believe Jesus is letting this man know that he has a, a need so much greater than the need to be able to use his legs again. Remember what John calls miracles in his gospel. He calls them signs. The miracles are never an end in themselves. If they were, then Jesus should have just kept healing. It said there was a multitude of invalids in the place, so maybe hundreds of paralytics and blind and deaf, so Jesus should have just gone around healing all of them, but he didn't. Instead, he only healed one man who couldn't even give a good answer to if he wanted to be healed. But the miracles were signs pointing to something, and that something was the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And what Jesus is telling this man is that you think you had a problem. For 38 years, you couldn't walk, and you were helpless and hopeless, relying on this magic water to heal you, and I fixed that in an instant. But you still have a problem that's infinitely greater than your physical problem was. There's something worse than being an invalid for 38 years, and that something is dying and spending eternity in hell. Jesus is pointing this man's attention to eternity, just like he did in Matthew 10, 28, where he said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There will come a time when Jesus will return again and truly deal with sickness and pain and heartache and death once for all. That's coming. Revelation 21 tells us in the new heaven and new earth, there'll be no more mourning, crying, pain, or death. And we eagerly anticipate that. But Jesus' first coming is a mission, and his mission was to deal with a much greater problem, our problem with sin. And so he warns this man to sin no more. But then look at what this man does after meeting the person who heals him. Verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. So this man is basically tattling on Jesus. It doesn't tell us he bows down in worship and recognizes him as Lord. Instead, he goes to the Jews and tells them Jesus is the one who told him to take up his bed and walk. Like what hardness of heart? Just just doing what would get him out of trouble with the authorities. And John tells us the reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus was because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, what are these things that it refers to? It has to be referring to healing. We find other accounts in the gospel where Jesus gets in trouble because he's healing people on the Sabbath, and apparently that's considered work. They were so lost in their legalism that they couldn't rejoice that people were being healed, and they had moved from disliking Jesus to openly persecuting him, trying to make his life difficult. But don't miss the fact that Jesus has a lot to do with this situation as well. Jesus didn't have to heal on the Sabbath. There were six other perfectly good days in the week that he could have healed people on. You see, this is no accident. He knew exactly how they would respond. So why does Jesus pick this fight? And the answer is mainly in verse 17. He says, my father is working till now and I am working. That statement is huge. That statement is actually so important that in the narrative of John's gospel, this is what leads to the Jews deciding to kill him. And here's why. It was understood in the Jewish mind that God could work on the Sabbath. 
God transcended the Mosaic law and the command to cease working on the Sabbath, but that only applied to God. And so when Jesus says, my father is working until now, there's no mistaking who he's saying his father is. So Jesus is stating two things here. First, that God is his father, and not just like God is our heavenly father, like the Jews would agree with, but literally that he has a divine relationship with God that they don't. And then even more than that, he's claiming equality with God as well. It's one thing to claim that God's your father. Just because God can work on the Sabbath doesn't mean you can. But then to say, I am working, too, that means that he has the authority to work on the Sabbath. And if only God can work on the Sabbath, then Jesus must be equal with God. So who has the authority to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus does. Why? Because he is the Son of God. He is God. And in case you think I'm reading too much into this, let's finish up with verse 18. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Jesus wasn't, Jesus was picking this fight on purpose. He knew what he was saying, and the Jews knew what he meant. And notice in verse 16, John said they were persecuting him for working on the Sabbath, but now that he's claiming equality with God, they're actually seeking to kill him. We're only in chapter 5, and they've already decided to find a way to kill Jesus. And that's why this encounter is a turning point in this gospel. But it's no surprise. This is a rescue mission. Jesus came to earth for one reason, to go to the cross and die for our sins. And we'll see next week that the conversation between Jesus and the Jews intensifies as Jesus continues to lay out the authority of the Son of God. But what can we take away from today's passage? There's several themes running together in this passage, but what I want us to remember the most is that Jesus is most concerned about our greatest need. Jesus is most concerned about our greatest need. And our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need is for someone to take our guilt and wipe it away. This invalid in the story probably had experienced a very difficult 38 years of living because of this disability, yet Jesus is most concerned with his soul. This man had a much deeper problem, and it still seems at the end of it that he's still hard-hearted. And I pray we aren't that way today. There's a serious problems, many serious problems in the world today. Some problems everyone feels, like right now in this pandemic, people are sick, people are losing their jobs, economies are being upended. And then there's all the other normal problems that life can send your way, that, uh, you know, both physically, emotionally, relationally, physically. There's very real problems that we experience. But there's a greater problem we're all born with, and that's the need for a Savior. Because of our sin against God, we deserve punishment. And that comes in the form of eternity separated from him in hell. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus lived the perfect life we never could. And then he died on the cross, taking the payment and punishment for our sins upon himself. And then God raised him from the dead, showing that he accepted his sacrifice. And Romans tells us that whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sin is forgiven. You've become a child of God destined to spend eternity with Him. So if you never come to grips with your greatest need of forgiveness before, then I would call you to make that decision today. And for those of you that are walking with God, 
I want to encourage you to continue walking in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, they heaped up religious burden on the people, but Jesus's burden is light. He invited us into a life of purpose and joy despite our circumstances. And there's nothing greater than waking up each day reminding ourselves, I am forgiven. I am a child of God. And let's live with a joy and a peace and a hope that's evident to the world around us and forces them to ask, why are they so joyful? And from that, we're able to point others to our only source of hope in this life and the next, Jesus Christ. Amen.